The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast. Today, I am with the founder and CEO of Virtuous Software. His name is Gabe Cooper. He founded the company in 2014. Virtuous is a CRM for nonprofits designed to help their fundraising efforts. Virtuous has raised $26 million in venture funding with the latest Series B round led by Fulcrum Equity in Atlanta. Uh, And Virtuous has completed how many acquisitions, Gabe? Uh, two. Two acquisitions. Exciting stuff. So how you doing, man? Uh, really good. Really good. <laughs> it's great to be in the same room for one of these for once. It's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, definitely better than a Zoom experience. Generally, like I just like when I do a Zoom podcast, I feel like it's just really boring. Yeah, it's it just feels slightly more sterile. Like I always love being in the same room if I can pull it off. So it's awesome. And mostly all your people are working in the office right now. Yeah. Yeah, we got about half of our team is in Phoenix and they come into HQ maybe three days a week and then the rest of our team is distributed. So, which is kind of a bummer for me. I love in-person work and I love being together with folks, but um, also having a distributed team allows you to acquire some great talent all over the country. So I'm not complaining about that. Yeah, you get to hire more people, but it's like, I I don't think we need to prove that people working together in the same environment is better. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of studies on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you just got to be sort of in this post COVID world we find ourselves in, you got to be a little bit more intentional about creating those moments throughout the year. Right. So whether it's like conferences or flying your team in or whatever it is, just to create moments of personal connection, I think is important. Mm -hmm. And what are you, what are you doing in the virtuous side for that? Yeah. So the big one, we do a a huge all team kickoff every year where we have our whole team into Phoenix, but then we, for each of the teams, we try to find these moments through the year. So it's great. Conferences are big in our space, right? So it's a good excuse to gather a bunch of people in a city. And then we have some density of folks in like Dallas and Charleston. And so try to do events and get people together in those areas. But it's, I don't know that we've perfectly figured it out yet, to be honest with you. Yeah, sure. And then do you, in those other markets that you say you have employees in, do they have an office or? Uh, no, no office right now. They, they tend to just find the best picnic table at the, you know, at an outside beer joint or food place to get together and hang out is the (laughs) way they're doing it today. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. So thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited. Why don't we just spend a little bit of time about talking about yourself and virtuous and the genesis of, of, of that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a product guy. Like I was a software developer by trade, love, love, love product. And so that's kind of how I came up. I went to work in my late 20s leading the technology team at about a $30 million nonprofit. And so cut my teeth in what it means to build tech in the nonprofit space, which was super fun. Um, But for the last 15 years, I've been an entrepreneur. And so uh, Virtuous is my third venture. Um, I had uh, one company that was consumer products. So um, mobile apps, primarily for the sport of golf. Uh, me and a couple of amazing co-founders um, did that company and uh, 
had a successful exit. Well, you know, we had no idea what we were doing, um, myself very much included in that. So as successful exit as you can when you have no idea what you're doing. Right, yeah. Very and, much as successful if it wasn't a zero, right? Yeah, that's so. right. That's exactly right. Um, and then it had a software consulting company. So we were building just custom software, a lot of mobile stuff. Mm-hmm. But about half of our customers were nonprofits. And so um, it gave the team I was working with a lot of pattern recognition in the space that we find ourselves in now. And so it's been fun to figure out how to adapt from that more of a product mindset, especially consumer facing product to a leader of a broader organization with customer success and go to market and kind of a B2B SaaS motion. So that's been a big learning curve for me over the past five to seven years. So what was the consumer product in golf? Uh, the flagship app was called the golf shot. And so it was GPS for golf. That's kind of our, we had several other apps in the suite as well, but that was kind of the one we were known for. Okay. Awesome. So you made a bunch of different apps for the end consumer. Yeah. We had a baseball app with, um, the Giambi brothers. We had an app with, uh, Tiger Woods on swing instruction. There was an augmented reality app for golf. We had a fitness app. So we were trying a little bit of everything, but the GPS for golf is the thing that really stuck. Um, my two co-founders were just brilliant in this area and did some really, really innovative things around how people sort of, uh, act on a golf course and how to, how to have them have an amazing technology experience without losing pace of play, which if you're a golfer, you appreciate if you're not a golfer listening to this, you have Mm -hmm. no idea what I'm talking about, but um, yeah, it was a fun experience to be a part of like a, a high growth mobile company at that point in history was super fun. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you're a golfer. No, uh, no, <laughs> no, really don't play at all. And, uh, it's funny. My other two co-founders didn't play very much either, but, um, I think it actually made it a little bit easier for us in the sense that, um, most golf apps were designed by, uh, sort of more nerdy golfers or attorneys. And so they were sort of overcomplicated mess. And so <laughs> we, we came at it from like, we need something beautiful and easy to right. use, you know, that's, that could be used by anybody. Cause that was us, right. We didn't know what we were doing necessarily on a golf course, but you know, you play enough golden tea and watch enough ESPN and you get on the golf golf course a little bit and you figure it out. Yeah. It's not terribly complicated. It's terribly difficult though to play that's right yeah <laughs> that's right i uh i don't see my i don't get any better no matter how much i play i should probably get lessons yeah i think that's why i stopped at a certain point it's like you know you, you have this like i want to break 90 and then it's like well i'm back over 100 again now it's like i want to break 100 now you're over 110 again right. and it's like it's going in the wrong direction i'm gonna right. quit while i'm ahead yeah it's just like losing weight right <laughs> yeah that's right. that's right i'm just trying to not get fatter right, right. just one day at a time um, so really, uh, so what, what was the, the, the kind of draw? Because you did a lot of work in and around nonprofits prior to Virtuous. What was the, the draw there? Um, I think we saw like a huge problem in the nonprofit space that was like twofold. One is uh, most nonprofits were handcuffed to legacy software that was just not great. So 20 years behind the times. And so that was kind of the obvious problem we're trying to solve. The less obvious problem is, uh, giving, like giving to a nonprofit is one of the most personal things you'll ever do. But most nonprofits are handcuffed to these tactics that drive really impersonal communication. So if you've ever given to a nonprofit, your experience most likely is you give, nothing happens. Maybe you get a janky email receipt. And then 60 days later, 90 days later, you get a piece of direct mail that feels like kind of institutional nonsense and is very disconnected from the reason you originally gave we hated that experience for donors. And what we found was 
donors to nonprofits would just opt out of giving. Like if, if the nonprofit couldn't communicate to them in a personal way and draw them in, people would opt out of giving. So most nonprofits churn out about 50% of their donors every year, which, you know, if you're in software, 50% churns a problem. Huge problem. Yeah. And so that we care deeply about generosity. We're kind of a single issue company. We only care about that. And so we saw our platform as a way to really drive net new generosity in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. A nonprofit is a recurring or should be a recurring revenue business and their true customers are their donors. It's not, That's right. it's not their constituents and to not have, I mean, my, my wife just did a charity fundraiser, uh, for uh, poker. And you know, I tell her, I was like, dude, you got to make sure that, you know, your host committee, your donors, they feel like they're million dollar, like, That's right. like that they're like Bruce Wayne. That's you right. know, from that's Batman, exactly right. like just bump their ego because that's what keeps them coming back. Yeah, that's right. right. And um, yeah, no, and 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 what? Not only is it um, being able to retain them, but to you know retain them on a subscription. That's right. Yeah, and I think that the the Bruce Waynes of the world are typically treated pretty well, right? Because you kind of know who those folks are. They're your major donors. You you know, their spouse's name, you know, their dog's name, you know, where they like to eat. Sure. Um, but it's like that next tier of donors down, like the everyday donors that are going to give maybe a hundred bucks. And if you're really impersonal with them, like that, like with any recurring revenue business, like that creates sustainable, predictable revenue. So if you can get an army of 10,000 people giving a hundred bucks a month, now you got something that's predictable, sustainable revenue, just like in SaaS, right? Right. But if you can't move that donor from that original $100 gift when they first got excited, if you can't draw them into your cause in a meaningful way, then you're just constantly churning. And so now you're just like chasing that next major gift to try to, right. you know, cover the nut. And it's just, it's it's this perpetual cycle of badness if you can't build meaningful relationships at scale. Yeah, and not to mention the risk of revenue concentration, there's a huge risk of revenue concentration. You see that, and especially particular verticals within nonprofit, you see like they're very major donor dependent, right? And if that gift doesn't come through, operations stop, and it's a really risky position to be in. So in your in your in your studies, like, you know, how would you segment the market of nonprofits? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of different ways to slice it. For us, we look number one at um, revenue of the nonprofit, right? And so kind of you have we think about it as an SMBN that's under, let's say, a million dollars in donation revenue is going to put you in an SMB bucket. Mm-hmm. And then for us, we really focus on organizations usually between like a million to a hundred million plus, and we have a couple different teams that serve those cohorts. And so that's we'll call that like the mid to mid enterprise side of the space. That's what we really care about. So that's one way to segment the market. The other way to segment the markets by vertical, right? And so if you think about nonprofits more broadly, you have human services orgs, like the Habitat for Humanities of the World. Right. You have arts and culture. Susan like Komen. Susan Komen, right. that's right. And then you have like universities or have nonprofit foundations. Healthcare has nonprofit foundation. Um, and then, you know, just a variety of other sort of sub-verticals after that. But we what we try to do is really create a story that resonates within each of those verticals and then to bring expertise into each vertical. Cause raising at like ASU's foundation here in town is different than raising at Susan G. Komen is different than raising. Yeah. At, it's like, a, a totally different customer profile, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a totally different, you know, product market fit. So that's, that's right. Right. That's right. And so, 
you know, getting the, um, the, the donor engagement, right. And, and experiencing that journey and, and, you know, making sure that you provide value on a recurring basis. How does your software do that? Right. How do you, from a feature perspective and from an engagement perspective? Yeah. So there's two pieces of it. Um, uh, we, we kind of call our category, um, responsive fundraising. And so we just found that, that growing nonprofits, we're figuring out ways to be more responsive to donors at scale. So all of our tooling is around that, but there's a couple of challenges. One is that nonprofits struggle to listen well to donors at scale. You can't build a relationship with somebody you don't listen to. So we have a set of data tools that looks at things like geolocation, your social media data. It looks at wealth data. It looks at your behavior on email and the website. And it uses all that data to create this sort of holistic 360 view of a donor. So now I know who the people are that I'm talking to. I know what they care about. The next step is actually figuring out how to connect at scale. Most nonprofits are like a little bit understaffed. And so building a relationship with 10,000 people is out of the question. Marketing automation didn't really exist in the nonprofit space in a meaningful way before we entered. Most nonprofits aren't using marketing automation. So one of the key parts of our platform is using that data and then pushing it through marketing automation so that we know donors are getting the right email, the right text message, the right postcard, the right phone call at the right time. So true omni-channel marketing automation driven by data. And that the combination of those two things is really what allows nonprofits to scale that kind of value. Mm-hmm. And so how does that, how does the cadence look? Because I mean, nobody wants to get hit up by the same nonprofit about 12 times. Like how do yes. you, how do you balance that out with like actually saying, okay, well, this is what your donation does. This is what the nonprofit's doing. You know, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's right. So we, we say that we provide a product, but we also provide a playbook and people. So we try to give you like a playbook of tactics that we've seen work really well in some of these areas. And yeah, in around that particular question, it's, It's just like your favorite for-profit brands. If you deliver value, you can have more touch points. So I always joke about Nordstrom. Nordstrom will email me every day, but they'll also email me with a picture of some dude that looks like me with a salt and pepper beard wearing a shirt that I can't live without. And so I don't care that they email me every day because it's delivering value, right? Right. If the nonprofit is just constantly saying, you know, the house is burning down, give us money. The house is burning down, give us money. Like it's Mm -hmm. real old, really fast. And so we coach nonprofits on, how to deliver value back to your donor in a meaningful way. And it gives you permission to, to have the conversation more frequently, if that makes sense. Right. And so that would be just like company updates. Yeah. And, and really the trick is get the company out of the way and connect the donor directly to the cause. Right. So if you give to dig a well in Malawi to provide clean water in a village, if your update is a video from that village and the impact you're creating and the stories of the lives that are being changed because of your gift, like you're not going to get mad about that email, right? Because it's putting you on the front lines of impact. It's not asking you for more. It's engaging you in the stories of the impact that you're creating as a donor. And that's super powerful. So if you can sort of create that sort of closed loop feedback and getting donors really close to the cause, you can, you can email them five times a day. You can text them all the time. It's great. Yeah, no, absolutely. So how big is virtuous now? Um, so I think we're right around 110 employees, maybe just shy of that. Uh, and, um, we've sort of been doubling the last couple of years. Right. So, um, kind of, uh, blew past the, the $10 million milestone that you care about in, in SAS, which is, which is great. And so kind of on our trajectory now, we want to, 
we won't continue growing the team as fast as we've grown it in the past, but we want to continue sort of um, doubling over the next couple of years and, and taking good yardage. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so, you know, you, you have scale, right? You're, yeah. you're past the $10 million mark. Right. You know, you've got, um, you know, you obviously have product market fit and go to market fit and, you know, some sustainable, um, predictable strategies that's working yeah. for virtuous. So, Tell me a little bit about the journey of, um, I, you obviously had a lot of exposure to the nonprofit sector mm-hmm. uh, prior to actually building your product. But, you know, t- can you like maybe give us a little bit of color on like, how did you, when did you know that you had early stages of product market fit and that, you know, and like, w- w- what was the indicator? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was at the end of the day, you, you sort of don't know for a year at least in SaaS. So you got to get a cohort of customers and see what they do at renewal time. So the problem with B2B SaaS is it kind of takes a minute to know. A lot of people assume they have product market fit because they start closing a lot of deals, but you actually really don't know until like you're more than a year in. Yeah, there's no churn cycle. Because there's no churn cycle, right? And so I think it was that we closed a bunch of customers who we felt like were a great fit. They were giving us big thumbs up in terms of how much they're enjoying the platform. But we started seeing they were just super eager to renew. And then particularly the problem like two to three years in, we saw that they were really eager to expand with us, like buy more of what we had. Um, so I think that probably, yeah, it happened really around year three where I'm slow to just proclaim we have product market fit. I think people do that way too early. I think mm-hmm. people start pouring gas on the fire before they really have product market fit. So we were sort of slow to plant that flag and say, yes, we're ready to go. We have product market fit really probably took like three years and made several mistakes along the way. Right. Like I think it, for example, in the early days, we thought we want to have an open platform with an API. And so we integrate with a bunch of best and breed software. So the nonprofit can choose the best software available. Right. And so, um, what we found was most nonprofits actually would prefer one throat to choke. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't have developers that can integrate with a bunch of different tools. They don't really care to deal with it. They want API. a platform. They want a platform. Right. So that was one of the big pivots that we learned from our customers early. And we're like, Oh man. Okay. So we, we really have to deliver a full platform here. Um, so there were several times along the way where we learned and pivoted to get sort of more clear and deep product market fit. But, um, even those, yeah, e- and they would even take, you know, more, I would say shallow features in exchange for not having another login. Yes. More shallow features. Yeah, that's exactly <clears throat> right. And, um, the problem is we've continued to move up market. And so those shallow features have had to become deep really quick <laughs> because you kind of, they kind of want both, you know, right. but, um, but yes, absolutely. That's a really interesting use case because what I, what I've seen is from what you were just speaking about is like, Hey, let's be really good at one or two things and let's make best in class integrations. That's right. And you know, it's kind of the Ben Thompson bundling and unbundling of, of, of technology. And, um, I've seen that because there's so many incumbents of SaaS companies out there, you know, that are really features, right. But they can build great businesses after a set of a couple of features. And, um, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, what they call the proverbial platform, but it sounds like from your experience is that your customers were wanting an all-in-one solution. Yeah, they were. And we're really hesitant to use the word all-in-one. We still like to integrate with a bunch of great tools. We have an open API. So we love giving people the freedom to do that. We don't ever want them to feel sort of trapped by us or that we're the only thing that they need. 
Uh, and we have partners that we love in the space. Um, but at the same time, it just turns out functionally. Like if you look at the attach rate of our additional product and feature sets, it's like freakishly high, right? right. So like our, we have online giving uh, as part of our platform. You can buy online giving other places and integrate with us. We're happy to have you that. But just it turns out most nonprofits are choosing to see us as the platform. Right, because online giving, I mean, that is a, that's a, that's a point solution, right? That's It's a point solution. Right. It's right. literally just this little feature that can probably, you know, for all intents and purposes, be considered commoditized. Yeah, unless you can deliver real value through it, it's commoditized. And so that's right. And so even as we think about sort of M&A and things like that going forward, that's really how we think about it is by bundling things, can we deliver value in a unique way? Because they have a single throat to choke, but they have a single integrated platform and that the value of that is really meaningful to nonprofits. Sure. So you, you know, I, you go in, you, you feel like, you know, you started to get, where, where, when did you feel like you started having product market fit? I know what you said, you didn't have product market fit, but when was the defining moment that that switched? Yeah, I think it, it probably was three years. I mean, I think we, um, that was a pivotal moment when we started seeing like really high renewal rates and really high customer SaaS scores about three years in. I think the other thing that happened was um, we knew our platform was more well-suited for larger nonprofits, um, but we were always afraid to sort of price that way and go into those organizations with a level of swagger like, yeah, we are perfect for you. You know, we were really hesitant. Um and so I think our mentality change there is where we would go into larger nonprofits and say, yeah, this is a great fit. Like it will work for you. And as soon as we kind of had that confidence, there was something that happened where not only like new bookings went way up, but we were closing more customers at a higher price point. And it turns out it was a better fit for those customers. So those customers were actually more happy and had a higher retention rate than the smaller customers. And so that was a pivotal point too. It happened about uh, really two and a half years ago was when that really started to take hold. Mm -hmm. Are nonprofits cheap customers? Uh, not all of them. There is a bit of a poverty mentality in the nonprofit right. space right. at times where it's just like we can't, we're not allowed to have nice things. Right. Um, but <laughs> I think that's changing. Like, it's just like guilt. Yeah, there's but, a guilt. Yeah, nonprofit guilt. There is, yeah. for sure. That That is definitely a thing. But I, we do see it changing. I mean, our customers have this growth innovation mindset, which is super fun to see. I think COVID accelerated that where mm -hmm. people were forced to change and think about technology differently. And so we've definitely seen more and more nonprofits stepping up and say, no, we have to invest in technology and capacity building. We can't have this poverty mindset anymore, which is, it's an exciting shift to see. Yeah. I mean, this is designed to be a revenue generator, not a piece of a cost. That's right. A cost maker, right? I mean, this yeah. is supposed to automate your fundraising efforts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, everything we do is positioned that way. If, if you just want a database, we're not the right fit. Like we're an offensive weapon for generosity and that's, that's how we talk about it. And if you believe in that, then it's a great fit. Mm -hmm. And so when you were, um, I'll tell I mean, so you're, yeah, you're three years in, um, you're getting a higher renewal. You're probably not the one selling on or closing all these deals. Right. No. And that's a good, that's a good signal that you have product market fit is that, you know, the, the rank and file employee can sell your software and relay the value proposition. They're not just buying from the CEO. Yeah. That's a great point. And I forgot to mention that before that I fired myself from sales early on and, you know, partially because that's not my background, but more importantly, I knew that unless we had a predictable, repeatable model, then we didn't have a thing, right? And mm -hmm. so 
if you have CEO led growth for too long without like figuring out how to make it work for your first two or three reps, like you just can't go. And so I took myself out of that job early. And so it was fun to see like the first time we had, you know, two or three reps hitting quota consistently with consistent pipeline. Then it's like, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, this is a thing. That's awesome. And when was that? Like how big were you then Uh, when you stepped out of the sales seat? I think, you know, even, even at a million ARR, I was probably only actively engaged in 30% of our deals. Okay. Gotcha. And, uh, when was the, um, when was the time that you kind of developed your go-to-market fit? Like now when we're talking about, okay, we have some things that, you know, the customers like, you know, we've cobbled together enough revenue to, to raise a bigger round and to, you know, to do the proverbial scale. Right. Yeah. And, uh, like who did you hire? You know, why'd you hire them? What was the go-to-market fit that you felt like you had the confidence to push the gas on? Yeah, I think it, it, part of, part of it was that as we knew that we could, um, scale customer success and sales to both do a good job. Cause there's two parts of that equation, right? There's the, do you have a model where if you know, you add five new reps, they can all get to quota and continue to close at really good unit economics at looking at CAC and LTV and cost acquired new dollar of ARR. So that has to work really well, but our customers are like really, really important to us. And net revenue retention is very, very important to us. And so we knew that if we couldn't scale customer success at the pace we could scale sales, it was all going to fall apart. And so I needed to see both those. I needed to see like low cost to acquire a new dollar of ARR and be able to ramp new reps and get them hitting quota. At the same time, I knew I needed to see a customer success department that could lean in and love our customers at scale to maintain a very high customer SAT score and very high net revenue retention. And if I knew if I could scale both of those things simultaneously, we're on something. So I think it's, we probably, you know, and to be honest with you, that confidence really came sort of post series a, like we had a good, we had good economics like pre series a, but we were still figuring some stuff out. Mm -hmm. I think it was really like post series a, you know, call it uh, 18 months ago that we really felt like, okay, like we can really pour gas on the fire at this point because we know we can scale without crushing customers or crushing the team. Right. And so how did you scale? Like, how did you think about scaling customer success? Because that falls into, you know, I mean, depending on how you, how you do it, but you know, sometimes customer success is a sales driven motion. Sometimes customer success is a implementation training support renewal motion. Yep. And where you put that on the P and L might affect your gross margin. That's right. So how did you, how did you scale that? Yeah. One of the most interesting things we did, and there's a lot of debate around this is we actually moved sort of our account management function, which handles renewals and expansion revenue. They actually sit under our customer success team, which does funny things because now you have like, revenue producing people that sit in customer success and not Mm -hmm. under the CRO. Um, The reason that we did that is because we knew that our, our account managers had to be really, really close to our customers. Like they had to empathize with them. They had to know them. They had to be doing quarterly check-ins with them because particularly in our vertical, like you have to know the nonprofit, like you have to care about what they're doing and it has to be meaningful. And so we felt like that was more of a customer success function so right now under customer success, we we sort of split our teams where we have some onboarding and data migration people. Then we have a support team, but then we have our account managers that maintain those relationships over time. We found that structurally that works really well. And then we have to pull out 
from a gross margin perspective, we have to pull out some of those customer success costs and, and bundle them into cost of sales just to have a, sort of an honest accounting of right of the, those costs. But structurally, we found that works really well. Right. Because account management, I mean, account management, doing the upsells, doing the renewals, I mean, that is a total sales function. So, I mean, that should be behind the, the line. So, you know, um, so do you just break it out like on the on the payroll and just say, okay, like a third of this guy's salary is going to go on top? Yeah, like our account management folks, like uh, the bulk of of all the costs associated with that team is rolling up under our cost of sales. Oh, okay, right, right, so, right, 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 right. Like we're very sort of honest about that on the on our P and L. Yeah, but functionally, we need them to be very, very close to the customer, and so they sit in customer success, and so where they sit in the organization doesn't sort of reflect where they sit on the PL. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Right. So um the you know go to market fit and you know selling I'm assuming it's all outbound sales, correct? Mostly. Yeah. So it's uh it's a this our sort of demand gen stack is uh partners. And so we have a there's a bunch of um agencies in the nonprofit space if that can help with fundraising. So a lot of times the founder of a nonprofit is very mission driven and Fundraising will be new to them, and so they rely on agencies to help. And so those agencies refer us work. Um, the next part of the stack is our category. So in the same way that HubSpot did with um, inbound or Gainsight did with customer success, responsive fundraising for us has been that sort of top of the funnel to begin delivering value even before people are customers and bring them into our funnel around some of those ideas. So that's more inbound. And then we have, um, then the top of it is is outbound, so like an, an account-based marketing motion led by, you know, sales reps with some marketing air cover doing in-market mm-hmm. kind of events to, to drive. So that's kind of the, but it's not, it's not a typical like ground and pound SDR motion. Like that doesn't work very well in nonprofits. Right. Like it's just. That's what I was going to add. That's what I was yeah. kind of going to is that like if you, if you're scaling as team, having that customer empathy and that talk track around it, like can get, I mean, it's not Yelp, right? It's not Yelp. Yeah. It's a totally different sort of thing. You have to know the nonprofits, you have to come across as a peer and deliver value, which means, yeah, that the typical huge room of SDRs, just outbound calling like crazy just doesn't work with our market. Well, we have to come in with way more empathy and sophistication, which means our reps themselves with the help from marketing drive pipeline. Right. And that means not necessarily, you know, I mean, I mean, at an expense, like your sales cycle might be longer because you're being more consultative. Mm-hmm. They're not telling you no, but they're not telling you yes. That's right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, we had that with one of our companies, uh, Pet Desk. It was a, uh, um, you know, market very similar, actually did like SMS texting, postcards, email reminders for appointments. And, you know, they had such a hard time recruiting salespeople because they were just so programmed for the wham, bam, you know, mm-hmm. kind of mentality of just trying to like close people as quickly as possible and running through pipeline while meanwhile, the best of breed salespeople, like they would have this very large pipeline and, you know, their, their sales cycle was like appeared to be longer, but it was because like, these are not people that you pressure. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's the same thing. Sure. Now you have to be careful about that. You like, if your sales velocity slows down too much, like it, it can be crushing for the team. So you have to put the right emphasis in the right place, but yeah, you're right. I mean, we, um, allowing customers to buy on their timeline is, is massively important. So, you know, we ask hard, hard um, questions and we want to get to a quick no if we can, but at the same time, like 
the customer owns that that buying process. You don't own that buying process. Yeah. So there's only so much you can do. Yeah, if they're talking to you, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> and they continually yeah. engage. There's probably some value there. That's right. Yeah. So um, you go. You got go to market fit. You're scaling. Tell me a little bit about your your fundraising um, kind of stories and the difference what it was between raising your seed, your A and your B and what that looked like. Yeah. So in the early days we did some seed, which is great. The typical like uh, friends and family kind of stuff, small, uh, some seed from like institutional, but very hands-off institutional. So I feel like I was really blessed in the early days to have seed investors around the table that were incredibly patient, great cheerleaders you know, you hear some sor- horror stories about how that goes with the early seed investors. And I was able to avoid all that, which I'm really, really grateful for. We did all that as a price round. We didn't want to do a note. We didn't know like the timing of if we'd raise again or what that would look like. So we did just price rounds for seed. Um, hit the numbers that we wanted to hit in terms of growth and, you know, uh, thought it would be time to go out for a small series A. And so went out for what I call an Arizona A, which doesn't look like an A in San Francisco mm-hmm. or other states, but for us, it was it was plenty of capital. That's my bread and butter, man, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Arizona A, Arizona three to five A's. million dollars. That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So I think that was it. I mean, I think I, we finished our A at, you know, just over three maybe. And Math did that out of Chicago? Yeah, Math Ventures, great partner, love Math. Um, they're invested in another company here in town, Trainual. Mm-hmm. Like just um, amazing, empathetic, great partners. They really lean in and get to know the business, and they actually provide value. Every VC says we're going to roll up our sleeves and be helpful. But of we do. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's the, that's the big uh, joke. Right? That is the big. None, none of us really do. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. But I'm really thankful. Like those guys did, and then um, that was followed by Seven Peaks. They're out of Bend, Oregon. How um, did they do? How did they add value? Uh. Well, it's funny. I've actually, um, from math in particular, we've had two different partners on our board and they're really savvy at knowing what we needed at the right time. So in the early days, uh, unlike or, or like other companies at our stage, we knew we had a cool product. We knew we could sell some stuff, but we didn't really understand our model and metrics well. And so the first partner that sat on our board was just maniacal about like, getting your metrics right and getting your model right and and having this sober view of exactly how the mechanics of your business worked on a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And so he sat on the board initially and it was like massively valuable. I mean, I could see my business in a light that I could never see it before right. down to like, you know, people ask me now, like, how do you know all of those metrics around your business? Like, how are you so metrics driven? Well, it's because people like that came alongside me and said, this is like just pound you into submission around key SaaS metrics. And so, um, and uh, that was Troy. And after Troy left the board, then Mark, who's on my board now, um, he was the former CMO at Redbox. And so he's like uh, a lot more culture oriented, like team building oriented and a lot more marketing and go to market minded. And Mm -hmm. so now he's able to sort of, you know, how do you think about partners and channel? How do you think it? So um, really sort of hands-on and helping. I think the key with any VC um, is uh, anybody can run sort of a playbook, right? I mean, you can sort of go to Saster and download your favorite way to do right. sales or your favorite way to do hiring. 
but it's, it's the folks that actually sit down with you and take the time to learn the business and meet your team and figure out the unique problems that you have and then apply those best practices in unique ways to you. I mean, that's really the difference for me between a, uh, okay partner to VC and a great partner to VC is the ones that actually take the time to learn how to apply it to your specific business. Right. And not giving you anecdotal, like this is what you should do in an ivory tower, but yeah. like they, they don't know the fact that with a nonprofit customer, you That's know, right. you have to, you know, this is not a SDR, you know, you know, turn and burn type of, of, of customer and that they have to actually lean in and dig in to understand that a little bit better That's to right. try to give you an altered solution. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 And it's, those are few and far between. And it's usually, I found with the folks I've talked to, it's more common if the partner was operational at one point, right? Like if they've actually been in the weeds and it creates sort of empathy and a willingness to dig in. But um, yeah, it makes all the difference in the world. And I like my board right now and our current investors have just been amazing around that. So a particular newest investor, Fulcrum, who did our series B, mm-hmm. like great, like operational focus, had done a lot in fintech like a ton of great pattern recognition, but had been in my seat too. And so um, it really takes this approach of they're, they are very smart, but then they just ask where they can be most helpful. But then when I say it, they actually do the work and help. Right. right. And so it's, it's, uh, it's been a great experience. Yeah. My learning curve around value creation post investment is um, wait until you're asked you know, and yeah. keep, and keep offering. And I've usually had the best outcomes that way. Yes. You know, I think there's like this, this underlying incredible insecurity that VCs have because they're around greatness, right? With founders mm-hmm. that they feel like this desperate need to try to provide value. And then like this whole like coachable mentality, like, yeah. okay, is a CEO coachable? I was like, well, what? Like, I mean, I, in that, in that respect, it sounds, I mean, like, anecdotally yes i mean I, I guess everyone should needs to be coachable right but like it's almost arrogant to think that you are in the position to coach i mean i, I try to take the stance now and it's been an evolving process that like we're we're equals right yes i just provide money yeah right yes <laughs> you know like you're tony stark i'm jarvis right like yes. you know i'm the suit i enhance it you know yeah. with everything you need and what else you need and i stand out of the way and, and try to help but how you should run your business who you should hire you know like that's so out of my place because how how could I possibly make a judgment call like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know what That's I mean? Right. Like from like, from like just diligence in the company for maybe six weeks and you co- showing up once a quarter. There's no fucking way. There's no way. There's no way you can do it. And, and I think it's what I appreciate is folks that have humility in that. So it's true. Like most CEOs, me included, all CEOs, me included, we don't, we don't actually know what we're doing, right? We're out over our skis all the time. Right. And there's this massive imposter syndrome and we don't actually know what we're doing. VCs also don't know what they're doing. Correct. And, and they don't Correct. know how to run your business. They don't, they don't understand what's going to work Correct. or what's not going to work. And so if you just come to the table with that humility, right? You can have conviction. Like if you think this is the right thing, don't be afraid to have conviction. But at the same time, don't approach it like you're a big deal and you have all the answers. That's just going to end poorly because yeah. inevitably either the VC or the founder are going to be wrong about some stuff. And so unless you approach it with a little bit of grace and humility, as you come to the table together, like it's just not going to work well. Right. Like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be effective? That's right. Right. And you know, I mean, I find that, um, you know, within, within the context of, of, you know, trying to provide feedback and, and, and communicating with founders is that 
I want them to always feel like they have a safe place. Yeah. To say that they lost a customer, you know, they have a lawsuit against the company, you know, yes. whatever, like, and because all that shit happens. Yep. Right. And I want them to feel safe to come to me and to talk it out because, you know, it's almost like therapy. Like, you know, you talk to somebody out loud about a problem. Eventually you come to the right answer. That's right. You know, yeah. the only thing I have is just a, a collection of experiences from other companies that may or may not be relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think VCs too, the good ones appreciate that, um, the weight of leadership for the founder is heavy and sometimes they, they can't go to their, even their executive team with stuff. And so sometimes it's just slowing down enough to be like uh, a sounding board or a shoulder to cry on to just, you know, allowing, giving CEOs a safe place to, yeah, unload a little bit, just talk through problems. You don't even have to have the answers. A lot of time it's just, they don't have anybody else they can even work through right. the issues with. Right. Yeah. They're not talking about like, you know, running out of cash, not hitting budget. They can't, right. Yeah. They'll lose the, they'll lose everybody. That's right. Yeah. No, it's really, really, really great perspective. So uh, tell me about these acquisitions. That's yeah. pretty exciting, huh? Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've loved the two acquisitions we've done. Personally, I really like organic growth over inorganic growth. Sure. We've seen a, a bunch of like PE roll-ups do a lot of damage in our industry generally because there can be some thoughtlessness around financial engineering that's harmful to product and customers. But for us, the couple of companies that we found are just amazing. So amazing teams and deliver a lot of value to our customers. So one of them was an online giving business uh, that had a great product, a small, amazing team, and they're just crushing it. That was in November, so about a year and a half ago. Um, and the most recent one is volunteer management. It's called VOMO. And so what we found was generosity is way more than just giving money. It's also giving away your time. And so we had to solve this challenge of like integrating volunteerism into what we're doing. And so they were, uh, Ooh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. 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 So they were, yeah, because that's, that's a currency as well. It's a currency, right? I mean, you have, you give time, talent, social capital money, you give it all. That's all generosity. Mm -hmm. So unless we could think about generosity holistically, we really couldn't fix the broad problem. Um, so really exciting. We knew that, um, we weren't going to build anything and prove in the market as fast as they had already done it. They had a killer product. Like people love them. Super sharp team. There's about 10 folks on the team in Dallas, Texas. And so, yeah, that's been, that's been awesome. The funnest part for me is sometimes with M and a um, culture integration can be hard. People sure. get stuck in their ways and you end up losing a lot of people along the way. And it's been so fun to see with this company in particular, like just the willingness to, to change, like, you know, proactively saying, Hey, we want to do more things like you're doing it at virtuous. Like how do we get there faster? Mm -hmm. You know? And so that's been really fun for me. I know they're not going to be all that easy and go that well, but um, when that works really well and it doesn't take like, you know, two years and losing half the team to figure <laughs> right. out how to shove like you didn't have together. You, you didn't have to say it. They said it first. So that's at least it right. sounded good. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how, how did you, how do you think about structure with that? So essentially you have a product and a customer set. So in turn, you have an arbitrage of revenue that happened yeah. and you have the ability to cross sell because, you know, I would obviously think as the, the acquirer, not the acquiree, you have a more robust go to market function. Yep. So how did you think about structuring old co with, 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 uh, yeah, I think, I think at our stage, and I'm still learning here too, but I think at our stage, what was most important for us is aggressive integration, right? So 
Um, bigger companies can sort of be a multi-product company and and buy, like, say, Salesforce building, buying Slack, mm-hmm. right? They can kind of like, oh, Slack's doing great. We're just going to let it sit over there. We might throw their logo on our website, but really they're going to do their own thing. We can't afford to be a disaggregated brand or no. disaggregated team at this You're not size. Big enough. Yeah. We're not big enough. Yeah. And so it's like full integration of culture and team quickly. And so we want everybody, like, the same plea playbook, singing from the same hymn sheet, like moving together. So fast cultural integration and fast product integration. So there is no like sort of with this team, there's no Vomo team and virtuous team. There's only the virtuous team. And so I think that that aligns culture much faster to a a company our size, but I think it's way better for our customers too. When customers start hearing like multiple different stories on multiple different products. That's that's not a good look. It just feels, it feels bad. And so there's like there's damages that can be done with integrating too quickly, but we want to err on the side of like aggressive integration rather than sort of keeping things separate. So meaning a, a Vomo, former Vomo uh, salesperson will now start selling virtuous stuff and virtuous salesperson will start selling Vomo stuff. That's right. So we already have our sales reps selling Vomo, right? We want every rep equipped to be a multi-product reps selling across our entire suite and that's already happening mm-hmm. and and even team integration too in our last acquisition of is called raised donors one of their co-founders is now a leader on the marketing team at virtuous he's not he rarely even touches his own product anymore he's right. just his talents were best suited in that place and so now he's in a leadership role at virtuous more broadly i mean it's that sort of thinking like there's no us and them it's all together all one thing from a marketing motion, sales motion, customer success motion, all of it. So were these companies venture-backed? Uh, one was venture-backed, wasn't one wasn't venture-backed, which changes the dynamic of M&A quite a bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because essentially you had to convince, you know, not only the founder, but the board. That's right. That their company was going to be worth more with you than without you. That's exactly right. And I'm sure you just threatened that you were going to copy them and put them out of business, right? That's yeah, just that's, that, <laughs> that strategy always works super well. <laughs> You seem like a guy well. that would do something like that. Yeah. No, I think um, you're right. I mean, I think um, brutal honesty always works better over the long haul. I've always taken that tact. People have long memories in our space and relationships are around a long time. So you can all, only say, you know, make up an aspirational right. reality that's not true so many right. times before <laughs> yeah. somebody calls you on it. Exactly. And so, yeah, with with the investors and board of, of Vomo just had very, like, honest, like sober conversations about, you know, where we were and where they were and where I thought we could go together and painted a very realistic picture. But the reality is I do think in that case, the two companies put together, it, I hate one plus one equals three as a saying, right. but I, in this case, I think that there really was more joint value in that go to market motion, especially now because we can cross sell Vomo into the virtuous customer base and deliver real value through an integrated solution. It really did make all the sense in the world. And so the enterprise value of that stock is going to be greatly increased because of the transaction. So it becomes a no brainer for the investors on the other side. Yeah. If they buy it, right? Yeah. If they buy it, right. If they believe in what we're selling, they didn't invest in us initially, they invested in Vomo. They don't know me from anybody. And so there and they is were that. sold by the Vomo founder that they're going to be next right. huge company. And then, you know, Virtuous, which is, you know, a mid-market SaaS company, yeah. is coming to them and buying them. And that's not what they were sold. That's right. That's right. And to the, the Vomo founder, um, to his credit, their co-founders, they uh, they were honest 
you know, and sober with their board and investors too about how they could generate the most enterprise value by going to market together and an honest assessment of where they were at in their journey. And um, I, I think that honesty and transparency went a long way in those conferences. They're never easy conversations, but fortunately our joint story was good enough that it really is, it represents a potentially really good outcome for everybody around the table, which is great. And how did you, um, how did you structure that? Because we're called the capital stack. I have to go into that from like a, uh, was it mostly cash, mostly stock? Yeah. Like a, a cash stock deal, cash stock right? deal. And then, so like, did that mess up your cap table at all? Or like the dynamics of that? Did you have to form uh, a new co or no? Um, you know, it didn't, uh, it didn't really mess with stuff too much. I mean, there's always sort of like legal, legal wranglings around that kind of stuff sure. and, and tax implications for everybody right. involved. Exactly. But, um, we were fortunate on this deal where, um, our attorneys uh, here in town, the fine folks at Snell, and um, the attorneys that represented the other firm were were very pragmatic and deal oriented, right? And so got to like really good pragmatic solutions quickly for like how to get those investors on our cap table. Um, there is sort of like a holding company gathered together, and it worked really great. And there's tax benefits and. Um, yeah, so it was it was a lot cleaner than it could have been. I've been a part of some of these kind of things where it's like, oh gosh, this is a huge mess. And with I, all yeah, these and I think the lawyers make it more complicated. And, yeah, that's right. Right, and it's just like they get so neurotic because it's not super clean that yeah. you know it's just like, dude, just figure it out. Yeah, don't make your problem my problem. You figure it out. This is what I want. Go figure it out. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, so tell me a little bit. I was reading one of your last interviews, and it said that there was a lot of industry education within the product because you're dealing with people that were not super, um, you know, you know, uh, forward thinking tech adopters. I mean, I'm sure it's been accelerated, like you said, mm-hmm. with COVID, yeah. but how did you, how did you have to do that within your product? Uh, well, um, part of it is just creating great content and playbooks outside of our product that can get people thinking about innovation in new ways in the nonprofit space. So we spend, you know, our marketing department's probably bigger than most marketing departments, but partially that's because we're doing category creation, and a lot of content and, and market education around just that problem. Um, but the other thing was, uh, I'm a believer that B2B SaaS products should be thought of almost like consumer products in terms of how easy they are to use, how great they look, how easy it is for people to adopt them. And so most of the nonprofit tech space didn't think that way. It looks like just what you think about legacy software from the nineties. That's what the software looks like. And so part of it for us was taking this consumer mindset where we're like, Oh, we just want to make it really easy for people to find their way around and do the right kind of things and give them little hints along the way and show the metrics they've never seen before and then point them in the right place for how to act on those metrics. And so, um, I think that really is, and I think that's true of every B2B SaaS company is like, think about your product and product design as uh, like a consumer app. Yeah. Most people don't think with B2B SaaS, oh, I need to hire great like UX or I need to put UX at the top of my list to care oh, about. Oh, yeah. It's, it makes it's, it's table stakes difference. now. Yeah. You can't have a shitty MVP anymore. That's right. There's too many solutions out there. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's why you're seeing all these giant seed rounds because they, you know, they can't not only, I mean, not only do they have to, um, make a great product, but like, you know, they have to actually execute on, you know, delivering it with enterprise, especially. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. This was a ton of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, I have some quick kind of canned answer or canned questions and answers, you know, uh, what, what's your favorite book? Oh gosh. Um, I think in, in the context of this podcast, the book I've probably enjoyed the most is lost and founder. So a guy named Rand Fishkin, he's uh, the founder of Moz. He, uh, he wrote a, a very honest sort of memoir on how uh, his fundraising journey went and the ups and downs of all of that. But yeah, Lost and Founder is just a great read for any entrepreneur that's thinking about raising money. Yeah. And so what about, um, wait, I have one other question. I just thought about it. This was a really good question. I'm giving my credit to my own questions. But um, tell me, tell me, was the M&A strategy, was that part of the pitch when you went to Fulcrum for your series B, or is that something that opportunistically came along? Is that something they were pushing? Um, they are definitely, they think in terms of M and a, and so that's part of their strategy, but it's not, um, it wasn't a mandate for us. Right. So they're, they're very willing to do M and a and help fund M and a when it makes sense, but they're, they haven't been pushy about it. I think in both cases, it was very opportunistic and it was people, by the way, that we had had relationships with it for a long time before we did the transaction. So I think there's a lot of danger if you have a, a VC that's just like, we're going to start throwing random companies over the wall. Yeah. We want you to vet them real fast and buy a lot of them. And yeah. it's just, yeah, well, we'll, let's give you a deal team. And like, yeah, yeah, it's, if you don't, if you do that outside of the strategic value to the organization and, and I also think relationships matter. And so with those two companies, we were able to build those relationships over time and Fulcrum wasn't, pushy on that, right? They really took our lead around both, which is great. Awesome. Uh, so you said favorite book. Uh, what is your um, best piece of business advice you've ever received? Oh man, best piece of business advice I've ever received. Uh, this is kind of business advice and it's kind of life advice, but um, I'm a big proponent of uh, oversubscribing to the idea of durable relationships. And so I think especially as a founder, you, it is lonely, right? There's a weight of leadership and you can feel all alone. And so I think for me, it's surrounding myself with people that know me well and that have my back through thick and thin that are willing to have the hard conversations. And even if like something I do goes, you know, we IPO at a 40 X or it just burns as a dumpster fire than in any outcome, that I know that they they have my back and they're there for me. And I think so many founders think about business sort of outside of the context of relationship and they don't have those durable relationships around them. And you've seen in some of the most recent sort of culture books out there where like founder burnout and just people getting sideways is really bad really quick when you don't have great people around you to hold you up. Yeah, I mean, everyone has a shelf life. Yes, <laughs> like yeah. you can only ride that so long. And you know, that's right. Uh, Danny Lashavio, he, he said something really great on my podcast. His his business quote was, uh, uh, "Working stops working when it stops." I don't know. I forgot. Forget it. You can listen to it. It's great. Mm -hmm. um, but it's basically about you know stopping work when it stops working for you, right? Yes. And and I think that that's uh, really really good sound advice. Uh, are there any companies that you just have a crush on right now? Uh, I mean, there's a lot I love, uh, I love category creation. So another book that I love is play bigger, which is sort of the playbook, um, around how to create a new category. And so I love watching customers that are doing this well, right? So 
Um, Active Campaign does customer experience. Drift does it was conversational marketing. Now it's like a full conversational platform. Obviously, Gainsight with customer success, HubSpot with inbound. So those tech companies that are category creators, those are the ones that I That's spend a, a lot deal. of time following. Right. So like you know, Drift has been a good one lately. They they're culturally a lot different from us, but it's super fun watching what they do. Nice. And so, what about public stocks? You know anything that's interesting? No, I guess stay out of that. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I don't invest in stuff that I don't know anything about. Right? Gotcha. Like I I I love like I seed invest like, from time to time in other small companies, you know, around town. That kind of thing. Like that's super fun for me because I actually understand the thing that money is going into. But right, like public stocks, I have, I have no idea. I don't even have time for it. I couldn't tell you anything about it. Yeah. What kind of uh, what kind of seed seed stuff do you like? Um. You know, one of the companies here in town that I'm a part of that uh, that I love is they're called Better Agency. Oh, it's yeah. Sam Will here in town. Like, like great team, great founder, uh, great sort of vertical mm-hmm. that they're going after. The TAM is great. And so, like, I like those. And you're seeing more and more of those stories in Phoenix around, like, there's a lot to SAS. like about There's a lot to like about Better Agency. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great company. Yeah, no, he's great. What else? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Is that the only one you did? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of other smaller ones. There's a there's one that I was a part of, um, it, and it just ended up being like six months, and he he sold the company to Mailchimp, and so like I get a check in the mail, I'm like, dude, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your IRR was out of control. <laughs> yeah. What was the company? Um, gosh, I, I, I knew you were going to ask me that. I can't even. Isn't that horrible? I don't even remember what they're called. It's just a transaction to you. He was just a number. Yeah, yeah. Like, he <laughs> do you remember a, the founder's he was name? A buddy. Uh, gosh, no. Isn't that horrible, <laughs> dude. You're worse than Isn't I am. Horrible. God, you're such you, a greedy you capitalist. On, you You'd be really spot. good at my job. You know, you should. Yeah, <laughs> you should do thanks. this, man. Yeah. You got a six. You know, six percent yeah. cash on cash, or, yeah. or six month cash on cash. That's yes. great. Yeah, I remember the product well. It was like it was like Canva for creating like social ads quickly and deploying them. I love Canva. Yeah. So it was like, it was that, but all templated for quick social ad creation. So it was a great point solution that fit in another platform, but you know, like those kind of opportunities, like I really like, yeah. And I like advising. Sure. Like people that are in the real early days. And again, I don't offer them. I don't know what I'm doing either, but I find that like sitting with entrepreneurs that are just a stage or two behind where you're at right now. It's like super fun for me, just watching them figure it out and helping them along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gabe, thanks so much for coming. Everybody, that is the Capital Stack Podcast, where we talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in early stage technology companies. If you like what you heard, please share uh, or you know, like, leave a review. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Search my name, David Paul, or the Capital Stack. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.